In Hebrews 7, if you're not there already, Hebrews chapter 7. Let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as we gather here this morning in Christ, we proclaim that you are worthy. The desires of our hearts this morning as we open your word is that all glory would be to Christ. Heavenly Father, we pray that even this morning as we see this passage, as we look to this seemingly obscure little Old Testament passage, this character Melchizedek, that we would see him and his greatness and then we would look beyond him to the greatness of Jesus Christ, the true King of Righteousness. Pray that you would be honored in all that we say and do. That your name would be lifted high this morning. We pray that you would remove distractions. That we would focus in. That you may be honored as your word is proclaimed. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Are there any puzzle people, people out there? Are you guys puzzle people? In fact, you can raise your hand. Is, are there people who just love to do puzzles? I am not myself necessarily a puzzle person, but I have been known to enjoy the occasional puzzle in my day. Throughout my puzzling career, I have uh, learned some of the secrets of putting together a puzzle. The first secret, and you'll probably want to write these down. <laughs> the first secret is that you do not launch blindly into a puzzle. You need to see the big picture. You need to know where you're heading. In fact, often you'll find people who are working on a puzzle will have the box that has the picture on the front sitting there, propped up so they can see it. So all along, while they're putting this puzzle together, they know where they're going. They know the goal, the final picture. Secondly, you don't just mindlessly start in the middle of the puzzle. It would take forever to have to find all these little pieces. Rather, you start on the edges. You build a foundation, a, a frame from which you work inward. So once the picture is framed, then you can work inward towards the final completed picture. Now, these are fairly obvious secrets. In fact, they're not really secrets at all. Most people who have ever done a puzzle realize these things. And yet, they're important steps. They're important things to realize. 
And so this morning, after several weeks away, in fact, I think it's been uh, about four weeks since I last preached on a Sunday morning. So this morning, after several weeks away, as we return to Hebrews, we're coming to a passage in Hebrews 7, 1 to 10. And it's an important passage. And yet, even as it was being read this morning, you may have kind of sat back and thought, wow, this is an interesting passage. But I think as we come to Hebrews 7, it's important for us to see the big picture. We're going to begin this morning by reviewing where we've been. As I said, it's been a while since we've been together, since I've been preaching on a Sunday morning. So we're going to view, review where we are in the larger context of Hebrews. And then as we come to Hebrews 7, 1 to 10, I want to see where the author of Hebrews is heading. You see, Hebrews 7, 1 to 10, it's not a passage that you probably memorized in Sunday school. This isn't a passage that as you walk into someone's house, it's going to be there framed in beautiful lettering on the wall. It's not a passage you'll likely hear in anyone's salvation testimony. It's not a popular life verse passage. Yet Hebrews 7, 1 to 10 is a passage that is foundationally important to the point that the author of Hebrews is making. It's important to our hope in Christ. And frankly, when it comes right down to it, it's important to the gospel itself. Returning to the opening illustration of a puzzle, Hebrews 7, 1 to 10 is an edge piece. It's a foundation piece that without which the rest of the puzzle doesn't make sense. It's a piece from which the author of Hebrews after laying this foundation, will move forward towards his com- conclusion. So with that in mind, we're going to start this morning again with the big picture. We're going to lay the foundation this morning, a foundation on which, Lord willing, we will build in the coming weeks as we move towards that glorious gospel truth of the superiority of Jesus Christ. Yeah. So we're going to start this morning with the big picture. Where have we been? A review, quickly. Hopefully you can see that. First, Hebrews 1 to 4, chapters 1 to 4. Just very generally, a a proclamation that Jesus is superior. In fact, as we've been going through Hebrews, we've talked many times that that's kind of the theme of the whole book that Jesus is better. Jesus stands out, He is superior. You may remember the the author of Hebrews is writing to these uh, Jewish believers, hence the name Hebrews. These believers are being pulled back. They are tempted to run back to the temple, to the comfort of of the priests and the sacrifices. There's comfort there for them. And the author of Hebrews here is seeking to tell them, no, that is but a shadow. It served a purpose, but it's pointing to something greater. Jesus Christ is that greater thing. Jesus is superior. He's superior to prophets. He's superior to angels, as we see in chapter 1, to Moses and to Joshua, as he goes on explaining through chapters 2 and 3 and 4. All these great men from the Old Testament, all these great men through whom God did great things, Jesus is better. As you come to Hebrews 4, verses 14 to 16, 
This is where Jesus is first kind of put forth by the author of Hebrews as our great high priest. This is, in Hebrews 4, 4 to, 4 to 14, kind of the, the, the theme, the working proclamation through which the author of Hebrews will be focusing on through the next several chapters, chapter 4, 5, 6, 7, even into 8. Jesus is our great high priest. As you move forward into Hebrews 5, verses 5 to 10, it's an introduction to Melchizedek, to Jesus' unique priesthood. Then Hebrews 5, 11 through 6, 20, where we've been the, the three weeks prior when we were in Hebrews, we were in these passages. It's a short detour of the author of Hebrews uh, pauses. He rebukes his readers. He calls them to faithfulness and to endurance. You should know this. You should be able to handle this. And yet you haven't grown. You can't handle the meat of the word. He rebukes them. As we come to our passage this morning, the author of Hebrews now, in Hebrews 7, 1 to 10, actually starting in verse 20 of chapter 6, the very end of chapter 6, he is merging back into his argument started in chapter 4, verses 14 to 16, that Jesus is a great high priest. And he does that by returning to show the greatness of Melchizedek. And then, Lord willing, moving forward as we get to Hebrews 7, 11 to 28, we will see that based on the greatness of Melchizedek then, the author of Hebrews is laying that foundation that Melchizedek is great because then he will show that because Melchizedek is great, Jesus, who is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, is great. In fact, he is greater than Melchizedek. His priesthood is superior In fact, it comes to a climax in Hebrews 7, 23 to 25. The author of Hebrews kind of brings it all together. This is, the, this is where he's going with this. So this morning, as we are in Hebrews 7, 1 to 10, as we are walking through Melchizedek, and it, and it might get kind of technical at times, just remember this. Keep this in mind. This is what the author of Hebrews is working towards. The former priests were many in number, they were because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, this Jesus, he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Amen. That's where we're working towards. He is able to save to the uttermost. So as we're working through Melchizedek, and, and maybe it'll get technical, maybe your mind will be tired by the end of this morning, just remember, this is working towards this, that Jesus Christ is able to save to the uttermost. Mm -hmm. And so with this full picture in mind, we now go back to Hebrews 7, verses 1 to 10. And this morning we're going to see the identity of Melchizedek and the greatness of Melchizedek. The first thing we see is the identity of Melchizedek. At this point, as I mentioned earlier, he is merging back. 
He has rebuked his audience. He has called them to faithfulness. He has called them to endurance. And now he's coming back to this point of Jesus Christ being a priest after the order of Melchizedek. In chapter 5, 10, we're first introduced to this where he says, the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. This is Jesus Christ being designated by God a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And so the question this morning is, who is this Melchizedek? Why has his name been brought up twice now in Hebrews? Why is he so connected to Jesus? Who is Melchizedek and what in the world does it have to do with Jesus? As you're probably aware, Melchizedek is an Old Testament character. He's a character that we're first introduced to in Genesis 14, verses 17 to 20, a passage that Todd read for us this morning. In fact, Hebrews 7, verses 1 to 3, really just kind of recounts that. It recounts what happens in Genesis 14, verses 17 to 20. And in both passages, Genesis 14 and here in Hebrews 7, we see that this Melchizedek stands out as unique. There's something odd going on here. There's something special about this man. For this Melchizedek, verse 1 says, King of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, as Todd mentioned uh, earlier this morning, there was a, a federation of kings who had attacked uh, another federation of kings. Several cities in this area, including Sodom and Gomorrah, where Lot, Abram's nephew, was. They had plundered these cities. They had carried off all this loot. They had carried off even Lot in, in his household. So in Genesis 14, Abraham pursues them. And when they get to, to, to the area of Dan, Abraham attacks them by night and he takes them captive and he, he, he takes back all this loot. He takes back Lot. He defeats these kings. And in verses 17 to 20, Abraham is now returning back to the area where these cities were. He's returning back to the area where, where Sodom and Gomorrah were. And as he gets close to this area, this king comes out to meet him. This Melchizedek. We don't know a lot about him. But what we're told that he is a king and he's a priest of the Most High God. There's a couple of things that stand out to us here. This Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. The first thing that catches our attention, or at least that caught my attention, is the identification of Melchizedek as both a king and a priest. This is unique. In fact, there is no one else in all of Scripture that is identified as both a king and a priest besides Melchizedek and then Jesus Christ. In all of Scripture, all of these pages, all of these verses, all of these books, there are two people 
who are said to be both a king and a priest, Melchizedek and Jesus Christ. That fact alone from the very beginning tells us there is something unique here. In fact, in Israel, these lines, these these roles of a king and a priest are clearly defined. There is a stark contrast between them. There is a stark line that, that cannot be crossed. In fact, you may remember the story of Saul when he's condemned in 1 Samuel 13 because he crossed that line. As he's waiting for Samuel, he gets impatient and and he offers a burnt offering to the Lord without waiting for Samuel to come and to offer it legitimately. And he's condemned, he is judged for that, ultimately losing his position as king. Another king, King Uzziah, you might know that name. Isaiah writes, And the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. It's King Uzziah. His, his life is recorded for us in 2 Chronicles 26. He was a good king. In fact, he was a king who ruled Judah for 52 years, beginning ruling at, I believe, at 16. In all the years of his ruling, he is said to, to do what is right in the sight of the Lord. He's a good king. He honored God. He tore down these high places of, of Baal worship. And yet, in 2 Chronicles 26, we are told that at the height of his reign, pride overtook him. And he overstepped his bounds, and he too crossed this line. He entered the temple to offer incense to the Lord. And despite all his years of faithfully reigning, this act of disobedience he is judged for. In fact, he is struck with leprosy. Ultimately, he dies. So it's clear that, the, that these two roles, king and priest, God takes very seriously. They are not roles that are to be mixed. In fact, as I mentioned earlier, there are two people in all of Scripture, Melchizedek and Jesus Christ, who are both king and priest. So right there, that grabs our attention. There's something unique about this Melchizedek. He stands out. He's special. The second thing that might grab your attention, this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God. This foreign king is not just a priest. He's a priest of the Most High God. And this isn't just the Most High God of many gods, as if uh, Melchizedek, as this foreign priest, offers or worships many gods, and he's a priest of the Most High of these many gods. But it becomes clear in Genesis 14 from the language that both Abraham and Melchizedek uses that they worship the same Most High God, the one and true, the only Most High God. That's fascinating when you stop and you pause to think about that. That this man who shows up in only two other Verses in all of Scripture, this mysterious Melchizedek, not from the line of Abraham, as we'll see very clearly in a couple of verses, 
This king priest serves God. Through scripture, we see God at work in the world, primarily through Abraham and his line. God has made a promise. I will bless you. The world will be blessed for you, through you. I will give you a land and a people and a blessing. And the majority of the Old Testament through Jesus Christ traces God at work in the world through Abraham and his line. And yet here we see that God is not only at work in the world through Abraham and his line. We're not given the backstory of Melchizedek. We don't know why God called him as a priest. We don't know why he was needed as a priest. We don't even know for sure where Salem is. Many people think it is ancient Jerusalem. But we can't be sure. It's somewhere in that area. It's probably the best candidate. But there's so little that we know about this man. And yet as God was fulfilling his promises to Abraham, he, was also, he had also called this other man, Melchizedek, to serve him uniquely as a king-priest. He's called by the same God as Abraham to a different purpose than Abraham. And once again, as, as through so many other passages in Scripture, we're reminded that our perspective of what God is doing is so limited. We know so little. God is doing something greater than we could even fathom. He's at work on the, in the world on many levels. It's Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abram returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. To whom also Abram gave a tenth part of all. That is a very important part, the fact that he blessed Abraham, that Abraham paid him his tithe. That will play actually a key, part, a key point as the author of Hebrews is making his, his argument here. And we'll come back to that in verses 4 to 10. It's actually the, the kind of the, the meat of verses 4 to 10 is focused on those two lines that Abraham, or the, that Melchizedek blessed Abraham, that Abraham paid a tithe to him. And so we'll come back to that. But as we move forward into verse 2 here, I want to focus on the name of this Melchizedek, his names. These two names that are translated for us. First being king of righteousness and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. These are names that grab our attention, that direct our thoughts in a very purposeful direction. King of righteousness and king of peace. As New Testament believers, righteousness and peace immediately bring one name to mind. It is the name of Jesus. Righteousness draws our minds to, to passages like Isaiah 32.1. Looking forward to a great king of righteousness. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness and princes will rule in justice. 
And scripture is moving forward, looking forward to that day, this king of righteousness who will come and who will rule. You get to the New Testament, you have passages like 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might be the righteousness of God. Philippians 3.9, Being found in him, not having a righteousness of our own that comes through law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. And he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Melchizedek is the king of righteousness, and yet he points to a greater king of righteousness, the true king of righteousness, Mm -hmm. Jesus Christ. What about the king of peace? Well, again, peace is 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 a word that is very associated with Jesus Christ. In John 14, 27, Jesus promises his disciples, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Colossians 3, 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Going back to Isaiah 9, 6, to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Again, in Isaiah 53, 5, he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. Luke 2, 14, at the birth of Jesus Christ, the angels proclaim glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Jesus is the true king of righteousness, and he is the great king of peace. And the author of Hebrews is very purposefully drawing out this connection between Jesus and Melchizedek. In fact, as you move forward into verse 3, it becomes even more apparent that these similarities are, are not just accidental. But that Melchizedek is pointing forward to Jesus Christ. He's a foreshadow or a type, if you will. In fact, as you move into verse 3, we see his priesthood. In fact, there's some very odd language here that catches our attention. Without father, without mother, without genealogy. Having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God. There, he comes right out and says it. He is like the Son of God. The first part of verse 3 is kind of odd. It catches our attention. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Who is this Melchizedek? Is he just some spiritual being? I think as you come to verse 3, there's another verse that we need to keep in mind. Melchizedek shows up in one other verse in Scripture. Not only do we see him in Genesis 14, But he shows up also in Psalm 110, verse 4. And I think as we move into verse 3, that the author of Hebrews is interpreting Genesis 14 in the light of Psalm 110.4. Psalm 110.4 proclaims this, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. 
You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. There's a word that's introduced there, the word forever. Forever. This is an eternal priesthood. Taking that word, that idea of forever, and putting it in the context of Genesis 14, where Melchizedek, in terms of Scripture, from just the perspective of Scripture, we're not given his background, we're not giving his end. He shows up for three verses, and then he disappears again. It seems that he is eternal. He shows up, he disappears without any context. And so taking into account the lack of information on Melchizedek, with the language of Psalm 110.4 that speaks of the eternal nature of his priesthood, the author of Hebrews here, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, builds his case. He's without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. I believe that the author of Hebrews here is not talking about Melchizedek himself as a man. Melchizedek is a man. Obviously, he did have a mother and father. He did die. But at this point, the author of Hebrews is now turning his attention to his priesthood. Albert Moeller notes, Melchizedek's priesthood is unprecedented and not continuous. What that means is that Melchizedek is not a priest because his father was a priest. He does not have sons to whom he will pass his priesthood by relation. He stands alone as a priest of the Most High God, divinely purposed and ordained. The point that the author of Hebrews here is making is that Melchizedek is not a priest because he was born into it, but because he was specifically called by God. He stands out as unique in that manner. Again, this is fascinating because the Bible has very, in fact, just a few chapters earlier in Hebrews, there's very similar language that's used of Jesus Christ. In Hebrews 5, 5 to 6, it says this, So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a priest, but who was it that appointed him? He was appointed by him who said, You are my son, today I have begotten you. He says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You see, Melchizedek was called, ordained purposefully and uniquely by God to be a king priest. He is set apart. He stands out as unique in all of Scripture. The only other one who is like him is Jesus Christ, who was also called by God, uniquely sent and ordained for a purpose. The author of Hebrews is here very purposely drawing lines of comparison between Melchizedek and Jesus Christ. Through his name, through his roles, through his calling, Melchizedek looks forward to Jesus Christ. In fact, Hebrews wants to make these comparisons and connections even more apparent. But the author of Hebrews isn't done with his point here with Melchizedek. 
And so showing now this, this connection, this, this uniqueness between Melchizedek and Jesus Christ. Now the author of Hebrews focuses on the greatness of Melchizedek. He's seen the, we've seen those connections, so that's in our mind. As we move forward, that's in our mind, this connection. And the author of Hebrews will pick up on that, and, and he'll move forward with that in a few verses. But first, now he turns his attention to Melchizedek, to his unique greatness, to his superiority. And after showing that superiority, then he will move forward to show that Jesus is even greater. So the first thing you see in verse 4 is his greatness declared. This Melchizedek is a great man. Consider, consider, pause and think about that. In light of everything that the author of Hebrews has just said in these first three verses, and again, those first three verses can get technical. There's a lot in there. There's a lot of little connections that we're making with our minds. So the author of Hebrews here pauses and he says, now think about that. The uniqueness of this man. The uniqueness of this office that he was called to. The uniqueness of his names. Pause and think about this. In light of all of that, consider how great this man was. This man to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of his spoils. The patriarch. Again, the author of Hebrews here is making a point. He doesn't just say Abraham. Everyone knows who Abraham is. He uses a word that shows the importance of Abraham. He is a patriarch. That's a word that is used sparingly, used sparingly in Scripture. It, it speaks of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and even Moses are considered patriarchs of Israel. They play key roles in God's purposes for Israel, his redemptive plan at large. They stand out in the, in the, the story of Scripture as great men through whom God did great things. And when you think about the Hebrew audience to whom the author of Hebrews is writing, they greatly revere Abraham. And rightfully so. And yet as great as he is, as central as he is to what God is doing, he paid a tithe of his spoils of war to Melchizedek. It's a shocking line. I think it's one that we often just read past, but to the Jewish audience, the Hebrew audience to which this author is writing, that would have been almost blasphemous. And yet it's true. Melchizedek received a tithe from Abraham. From the very beginning of this section, before he even gets into the teeth of his argument, the author of Hebrews makes a shocking statement. As great as Abraham was, Melchizedek, this mysterious man mentioned in only two verses in the Old Testament, was even greater. And that is shown simply by the fact that Abraham paid a tithe to him. As Abraham pays this tithe, it's a show of honor. 
And yet he doesn't stop here with just this mere statement, but he goes on to prove his point. He proves his grief. He doesn't just declare it, he proves it. Consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And again, a tenth of those spoils, that's not a little bit. Don't think ten dollars. I mean, this is the spoils of several cities that had been sacked. I mean, think <laughs> millions of dollars. There's a lot there. And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi who receive the priesthood have, command, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law. All right, so, so his audience is familiar with tithes. In fact, the, the Levites, the priests, they receive tithes from the people. But there's a distinction here. The tithes that they received don't indicate their superiority over their people. It's not that as the, the people give tithes to their brethren that they are saying you are better than us, but they are submitting to and honoring God's law. It is something that God has commanded that they do. So as they do it, they are honoring God's law. They're showing respect to the law. But Abraham was not under, or Melchizedek was not under that law. So as Abraham pays a tithe, he's not showing respect to the law, he's showing respect to Melchizedek. Melchizedek, who's not related to Abraham, in fact, that's the point that he goes on to make, indeed, those who are the sons of Levi who receive the priesthood have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law that is from their brethren though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he, whose genealogy is not derived from them, he's not related from, to them. He received tithes from Abraham. Not only did he receive tithes from Abraham, but he blessed Abraham. Abraham, who had the promises. Again, just think about that. Abraham, who had the promises. Abraham, to whom God had said, had come and said, go and follow me and I will bless you and I will give you a people and a land and I will bless the world through you. This great man whom God himself made a promise. Melchizedek doesn't have that promise. And yet Abraham blessed. Or, and yet Abraham paid a tithe to Melchizedek and Melchizedek blessed Abraham. Not the other way around, as we would expect it. In fact, in case you've missed it, here he says it just right out. Beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. It's just a known fact that the one who is greater blesses the one who is lesser, not the other way around. And so Melchizedek blessed Abraham, the recipient of the promises of God. Once again, this is a clear sign of Melchizedek's superiority over Abraham. In fact, in verses now 7, 8 to 10, really, he goes on to show, what does this mean? All this blessing and this tithing and all of what, what does this mean? The greatness of Melchizedek applied. Here mortal men receive tithes, but there he received them, of whom it is written that he lives. Again, looking back to Psalm 110, his, his priesthood that is forever. 
But Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Now this takes some thinking power, all right? I've already, I know we've already been thinking a little bit, but strap in. It's a logical argument. It's an argument that doesn't necessarily, one that, that we would make in our day, and yet it's still a valid argument. The argument that the author of Hebrews is making here is that not only is Melchizedek greater than Abraham, but Melchizedek's priesthood is greater than any priesthood that then came from Abraham. He's greater than the Levitical priesthood. His priesthood is greater than the Levitical priesthood. He argues from the point of descent. So Aaron, Levi, the, Levit, the Levitical priesthood, all of those priests come from Abraham. Abraham is the father of the nation. He is the, the greatest in the nation because he comes first. And so the argument is, as he pays a tithe, as he submits under Melchizedek, showing the greatness of Melchizedek, everyone who comes from him also is in a way submitting under Melchizedek and proclaiming the greatness of him and his priesthood. He was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak. It's as if Levi himself, not just Abraham, but Levi himself paid tithes to Melchizedek. And really, this is the shocking kind of climax of his argument here. As Melchizedek is superior to Abraham, so the Melchizedekian priesthood is superior to the Levitical priesthood. And why does that matter? All this talk about priesthoods and Melchizedek and Levi, why does this matter? What in the world is the author of Hebrews getting at? Well, he's going back to that verse at the beginning that we read together. Going back to Hebrews chapter 5. So also Christ, verse 5, did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was of him who said, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The point that the author of Hebrews is building to, because Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, and because Melchizedek's priesthood is greater than Levi's priesthood, then Jesus and all that is in him and the priesthood that he represents before God is greater than Levi, is greater than the temple and the priesthood that you are so tempted to run back to. Jesus is greater. And so, Hebrews 7, 1 to 10 is a necessary and important piece of the puzzle that the author of Hebrews is putting together. In this passage, the author of Hebrews draws our attention to this mysterious yet important Old Testament man, Melchizedek. And though only mentioned in passing in two short verses, he's clearly important. 
And yet, in all of his greatness, Melchizedek is merely pointing to one who is greater. He is a shadow, a mere servant, proclaiming the superiority of Jesus Christ. Melchizedek is great, and yet Jesus is so much greater. And so how do we respond to a passage like this? This isn't one of those passages that has a great, you know, now go and do it. It's just a truth. It's a point. It's, if you will, a, a piece of the puzzle that the author of Hebrews is putting together. But I think, that, I think there are some truths that this general truth draws our minds to. First, knowing where the author of Hebrews is going, it causes us to rejoice in our superior Savior. Whatever you are tempted to run to, whatever tempts you away from the faith, Jesus is greater. I think this passage also helps to open our eyes to the sovereign God who is at work, bringing all things together, accomplishing his purposes, not just in ways that we see, but even outside of what we could even comprehend. God is at work. And so, yes, we are moving forward to a passage In Hebrews 7, 23 to 25, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But what's that word that we already saw in, in, in Psalm 110, the word that the author of Hebrews applies to Jesus? He's a priest forever. And that's where it ties into Hebrews 7, 23. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Without this foundation of the Melchizedekian priesthood and its superiority over uh, Abraham and over the Levitical priesthood, and without that, that language that we see in Psalm 110 of a priesthood forever, then we wouldn't understand the concept of having a priest permanent forever in the presence of God who is pleading for us. 